good to see your smiling faces. It's good to be here in the house of the Lord with brothers and sisters. And I just love looking out at you guys to see uh, the fellowship. So I'm glad you're here. Uh, some announcements. Be nice to me, please, and fill out the church directory so Miss Linda doesn't keep yelling at me. She's a tough school teacher, and I need peace in my life. So these are in the back. Please fill them out and drop them somewhere. You can leave them in the pew. You can put them in the office. You can staple a $30 bill to it and give it to me directly. Um, and if you have a $30 bill, I really want to see that. So in the bulletin folder, there's a, a number of events coming up. So listen carefully because they're not correct. We are being flexible in our old age. November the 14th, and I'll send out an email also. The ne November the 14th, we will have, Lord willing, baptism, communion, and our annual business meeting. And the ladies' brunch on the 11th. And the rest, you'll just have to pay attention to your email or other announcements. And you've got time. For All Hallows' Eve, Evangelistic Fellowship is Sunday at 6 p.m., not next weekend at 5 p.m. So it's only going to be one day, and we're putting it back an hour at the pastor's house. And any other announcements that I have forgotten? All right, I did something right for once. Thank you. mentioned the members meeting on the 14th as well okay good I'll try to listen better next time it's good to be with you today and I uh, wanted to thank again the Nelsons for hosting us this weekend that was a great fellowship time if you weren't with us you might want to put it on your calendar next year because we hope you're doing it again so anyway I got to be the mayor of Nelson Farms uh, yesterday, and with that privilege meant I got to taste every single pie. And that was worth the drive, I assure you. It was excellent and appreciated. We had a great time, enjoyed all that. Today, as we prepare to uh, worship, I want to give you a moment to pray privately where you're at, to confess your sin, to ask God to speak to you today through his word to help you to sing out great praises to him from the very heart, the depth of your heart. Uh, we'll give you a moment to prepare yourself to worship Christ today. And then, you know, I, um, I'm, I'm part of the selection of our reading. We're reading the Psalms and looking forward to Gordon reading it for us today. And this is a briefer Psalm, Psalm 79. So I added... Uh, Psalm 23, as you see at the end, it mentions something about a shepherd, and I always go back to Psalm 23. It's written in your um, worship folder. You'll need that in a bit. Gordon will explain when we get there, but I'll pray some aspects of that, and it's, it's a great guide also in your own prayers to think about Scripture as you do indeed come to the Lord in prayer. So I'll give you a moment 
privately to pray, to prepare yourself to worship Christ today, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we've gathered here as your people, as a flock that is gathered by the shepherd. We've gathered here together to ostensibly to, to worship your holy name. As inadequate as our praises and our worship is, we know that you will accept it as a father to dear children, caring for each one of us in more than we can actually imagine. I pray for your people, that indeed we would be comforted by your grace and your mercy that abounds greater than all of our sin. I pray for each one of us that we would enjoy the presence that we have gathered together as the family of God, shepherded by Jesus Christ our Lord, who grants us comfort and leads us to the truth and indeed can bring about great restoration to our souls. I pray for each one, those that need specific comfort for various trials and circumstances that they might be facing. I pray the anxiety that some may even feel would diminish knowing the care that you have for each one of us beyond uh, what we can imagine that indeed that you will continue to guide and to lead us to righteousness even when we stray. Our response is confession. We confess our sin and you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that our status before you is that status that Christ has obtained, not guilty. And so I pray that we would not um, grieve in guilt, but glory in the satisfaction that Christ has made for each one of us. And whatever our circumstances are, and whatever paths that we must follow, may we see the glorious light of Jesus Christ, have great courage, knowing that you are with us to the end of the age. Grant us, indeed, goodness and mercy all the days of our life, and may we enjoy the taste of your table, even in our fellowship with the saints, one another today, looking forward to an eternal uh, dwelling with you forever and ever. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Let's take our hymn books and stand and turn to number one. And as Daniel 4.37 tells us, we need to praise, exalt, and glorify the King of Heaven. Number one, praise to the Lord, the Almighty.
put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Psalm 43. scripture reading this morning begins with Psalm 79, and it will conclude with Psalm 23. We, as the pastor said, will read the 23rd Psalm in unison. I'll remind you of that when we get there. Psalm 79 begins on page 490 in the Pew Bible. Psalm 23, as the pastor showed us, is in the, uh, I think this is officially the worship folder instead of the bulletin. 
Uh, Again, Psalm 79, which I will read, begins on page 490. Psalm 23, which we will read together, is in the worship folder. Psalm 79 is a psalm of Asaph, one of the chief musicians during the time of King David. It most likely was written to remind the congregation of the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar in uh, 586 B.C., The psalm begins as a lamentation. It continues as a plea for God's corporate forgiveness for the people, as well as a call to see God's justice. It ends with a reminder to the Father that the people of Israel are God's own chosen people and praises God for his expected gracious answer to the need that they are presenting to him. And for us, it's a model prayer. We who are also his own people, the sheep of his pasture, a model when we face great difficulty. Psalm 23, of course, is David's beloved psalm in which he lays open his heart to the great shepherd, praising him for his great faithfulness, for his personal and everlasting watch care, not only for David, but for you and me, the sheep of his pasture, even today. Psalm 79 first. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Remember sevenfold, rather return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we are your people, the sheep of your pasture, We will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. We, uh, you and I, who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel, that he paid for our personal sin debt, the death, burial, and resurrection of the only Son of God, We are indeed God's elect people. We are, as David writes, 
the sheep of his pasture. Now let's read Psalm 23 in unison. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Even when we face times of severe affliction, may we have every confidence that our lives and our times are in your strong hand. I pray this morning especially for your persecuted church throughout the world. And I pray for the missionaries uh, being held captive in Haiti, though I don't know their circumstances, but I do pray that you protect them, save them, and may their faithful testimonies give courage to us, the sheep of your pasture. Your word, O oh Father, is our heritage and our joy. By your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, keep our hearts in your statutes forever and our hands ever ready for service. Amen.
worship Christ now in his word. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, we're continuing looking at this trial before Rome, the civil authorities, if you will, and this is part two. We're going to focus on verses 28 through 39. I did read it entirety, a context, um, 
previously, but we'll just focus on this section here. The first part of this chapter, if you haven't been with us, in chapter 18, we've considered the trial of Jesus before the Jewish courts. John just calls them the Jews. These would be the rulers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and others. This was a illegal trial before the religious leaders. They had some very strict protocols, and they violated all of them to accomplish a predetermined verdict. They were just looking, as we've mentioned before, of something to which they can convict Jesus of and therefore sentence him to death. In Jesus' public ministry, this attitude arose among these Jewish leaders. They were upset at him because he went about and was really getting a lot of the notice, the notice that they wanted to have. They sought to kill him as he healed people from disease. John records in 518, he simply calls them the Jews. These are these various leaders who tried him. 518 of John, they were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, which he wasn't, he was breaking their understanding of the Sabbath, their traditions, which is wrong. But he was calling himself God, or calling God his own father, and therefore making himself equal with God. They understood what Jesus was saying. I'm doing this on direct by God, and the, this, the miracles that I'm doing are evidence that indeed I am God. Calling himself God, they wanted to put him to death. John calls these miracles signs in his gospel. They provide the authentic, uh, authenticity of who Jesus is, both his message and Jesus as a messenger. One of these leaders by the name of Nicodemus, you've heard of him in John chapter 3, he was one of the rulers of the Jews, if you will. He saw what was going on. It was undeniable the kind of miracles that Jesus was doing, which validated what he said and who he is. And his claim, by the way, was also that indeed he is God incarnate. And Nicodemus comes to him in John chapter 3, is recorded by night, so no one can know that he's doing that secretly, if you will, from the others. And he makes the statement to Jesus. He says, we know that's not just Nicodemus. They know this too. They're, they're confronted with the facts. We know this, that you are a teacher come from God, that you're authentic, because no one can do these signs unless God is with him. These are real miracles, not the fake stuff that you're going to see on TV and at little gatherings around the country. These are real. Jesus Christ actually gave people back their sight. He gave them hearing. He 
called people to rise up who had been lame their whole life, muscles atrophied. Immediately they could stand and actually carry something. This has never happened in this kind of way, in this quantity. And beyond that, he could call out to a rotting corpse and ask the corpse to stand up and walk out among them, fully restored. The last miracle here in this section that we're at now, if you remember, in the rest of Jesus as he submitted to their arrest, one of his servants, Peter in this case, cut off a servant of the high priest, cut off his ear, and Jesus healed it, restored it completely whole, immediately. No one can do this. Do you know anyone who can do that now? I can tell you someone who can, the one who created all things and upholds all things by the word of his power. It is Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Miracles were not done for some sort of theatric or to gather a crowd. In fact, what Jesus constantly did in his ministry was send people away because they wanted him for the food. They they wanted him for the theater. They wanted him for all kinds of things other than to restore their rebellious heart against God. Jesus' message was supernaturally authenticated. There has been no greater display of God's glory in human history than in the incarnation and ministry of Jesus Christ, someone who is full of grace and truth and walked among us. They beheld his glory, his disciples. But those who were not his disciples couldn't see it, although it was right there in front of them. We talked about a a bit, touched on it a bit in our training session this morning. It isn't the facts. The facts are there. You should know the facts. We can present the facts. This is truth. It all lines up with the facts. But it's going to take a supernatural work of God's grace to raise the dead, to give the blind their sight, to give the deaf their hearing. It's going to take a miracle of his grace. And how will that come about? Simply through the proclamation of Christ. That's why we are so emphatic of proclaiming who he is for the forgiveness of sin. Those who are not his disciples that you'll see in this text, beginning with these Jewish leaders and then the crowd and Pilate himself, they respond in unbelief, sometimes expressed in apathy. They just don't care. And sometimes just outright antagonism. But in any case, they all are rejecting the very glory of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus would explain this to his disciples there in that upper room in John chapter 15, just shortly prior to this. Jesus would say in John 15 and verse 23 and remind them, listen, if they hate me, which they're going to demonstrate that they hate, the Jews and Gentiles both hate Christ. If they hate me, he says, they hate my father also. 
In other words, they hate God. They can't claim to know God and hate Christ. He would say, if I had not done, this is Christ to his disciples, if they had not done among them the works that no one else did. That's my point. No one else did this, you understand. There's nothing in history like what happened in the ministry of Christ that these people saw. If I had not done this, they would not be guilty of sin. By, by, that, by the way, if you misunderstand that, it's not saying they're sinless. They're guilty of what? The greatest sin that is rejecting the glory of God in Christ Jesus brought about by the Spirit. This is absolute blasphemy. And that's what they do. All of them. But they demonstrate that they hate God. They hate Christ they hate the Father. They are guilty then of this specific aspect of rejecting the glory of Christ. It's a greater condemnation that God has walked among us. And yet, man in his rebellious state continues to do so even to this very day. We'll see the range of rebellion. It's in our society, in our daily life. In a way, it grieves me. Most people could care less what's going on right here. The gospel is being preached. Christ is being magnified. Oh, by imperfect lips, no doubt. But Christ is being exalted and lifted up. And can I tell you that all of heaven is rejoicing because they worship Christ in perfection. They have seen and behold his glory. It is my prayer that you'll see it as well, even as he stands among these fools. Let's look at our text in John chapter 18 and beginning at verse 28. John 18, 28. To finish with this Jewish trial, now they're going to Rome. Verse 28. So then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, that's the high priest, by the way, to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves didn't enter into the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and, and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? 
Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Key phrase here. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What's truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Let us pray. Father, indeed, we would pray that you would bless your word, the hearing of it. May it sink deep down into our souls. May we, by the Spirit, see and savor Jesus Christ in an increased way even this day. I pray that you will bring to life any that are dead in their trespasses and sin and bring to livelihood those of us who have seen Christ our Lord. I pray in his name. Amen. I previously mentioned about this Jewish trial that has led us now to this Roman trial. The Jewish trial is quite unique. They had an excellent system that favored the accused. It was really kind of hard to follow it as we looked at it because they didn't follow their protocols. Every protocol they had put in place, they broke them. So it was kind of hard to follow their protocols. These Jews... Again, not specifically ethnic, although they are ethnic Jews, but these Jews are the rulers, they're the leaders. They are who Jesus Christ called hypocrites, and they demonstrated here by breaking all of their rules, their own protocols that they have put in place, as well as the Mosaic law. Now, here they bring Jesus to the governor, Pilate, it's a Roman trial. The Romans had some protocol too. Much of theirs are somewhat similar to ours. And so it really flows very well. And you're going to find it in the text as we unfold it. There's really four key elements in their trial. And in many cases, very similar to how our jurisprudence works as well. First, you would have some sort of indictment some sort of charge against the accused that is given. Then you would have an examination of that. Thirdly, a defense, a defense put on by the accused. And finally, a verdict then rendered. And that's what you have here. So let's follow that order in the text, beginning verse 29 of chapter 18. <coughs> when they bring Jesus to Pilate, Pilate goes outside and he says to these rulers, these Jews, note here, 
What accusation do you bring against this man? He's looking for the charge. He's looking for the indictment. Remember, he has to go outside here, as John notes in our text, because these hypocrites won't go inside. They think going inside of a Gentile's house is somehow going to defile them. They come up with that on their own. The Mosaic law doesn't indicate that. There are some separation issues, but, not going, but going into a Gentile house isn't one. They just extrapolated against the Mosaic law. One of the functions of the law did create a degree of separation between God's covenant people and the world, if you will. But the point of that separation wasn't to bring about isolation. And that's what they devolved into. Their own traditions that they added to it created such an environment that they became totally isolated. We would think cultic, if you will, in their practice. They couldn't get along with anybody. This is what the traditions of man have a tendency to do. Pilate, in this text, is looking for some sort of charge or an indictment that they might have had against Jesus. Notice how they deal with that in verse 30. They deflect and don't give them an answer. Do you see why these people are more politicians than they are religious leaders? They're not going to give a clear answer because they know they are guilty and drummed up this whole thing and violated all of their rules to get here. So by deflection, what do they say? They feign being offended, verse 30. They said, well, if this man wasn't doing evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. You're challenging us and our courts and all that we do and all our great protocols? The answer is yes, they're a bunch of hypocrites. They might have laws to say they do the right thing, but from the heart, they're doing the wrong thing. Now, if you remember, in the trial that they had as... Before Caiaphas, John doesn't really elaborate on that. We had to look at other Gospels. That's why we have four Gospels. It helps give us the full story. They're not going to repeat everything that goes on. They were very familiar, the writing of John, of what went on. Matthew explains what went on in that trial and what they found out. what, What they resulted in, I'll read it for you from Matthew 26. The high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered the Sanhedrin in there and those who were there. He deserves death. What was their charge that they had that Pilate asks them about? What is your indictment? What is your charge? What should, it, what should have they said? Blasphemy. He deserves death. That should have been the reply. Instead, what's the reply? Reply, verse 30. Um, well, if he wasn't doing evil, we wouldn't have brought you, brought him to you. Luke records this as well. And I'm going to look at Luke 23 in a minute, but if you want to see it, Luke 22, we'll back up a little bit in Luke context of it. <clears throat> Here it gives the next day when the Sanhedrin gathers Together, which, by the way, the trial is legal at night, and then by day, they're supposed to give the verdict. They're actually supposed to sleep on it another day and try to uh, 
acquit him, but nevertheless, the fix was in. When the day comes, Luke 22, verse 66, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and led him away to their council and said, If you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask, you will not answer. It, interesting, again, remember, those, as John has put it in his gospel, those who are of the truth, what? Hear the truth. Those that are not, they won't hear. And Christ is here explaining that to them. Verse 69 of Luke 22. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They know what he said, and they know what he meant by saying that. He was very clear about it. He is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. I am God incarnate. I will be at the seat of power, a King of kings and Lord of lords. No mixed words. They understand it. So they said, are you the Son of God then? In other words, are you God and he said, you say that I am. You have declared the very truth. Even though they didn't believe it, even though they didn't thoroughly understand it, they did say that. And their response, verse 71, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it from his own lips. That's the indictment. He claims to be God incarnate. He claims to be the Messiah. That should be the charge, it should be blasphemy. So why are they not clearly responding to Pilate? Because they know that this is a charge which Rome would say, so what? That's a religious thing. We don't have anything to deal with this. They don't have a concern about that. In fact, that's a matter you ought to take care of on your own. And I think Pilate does know this. We, we again, we're, we're not getting a transcript of all that went on. We have to piece it together from the Gospels, but you get the idea that he, he really knows what their charge is. We'll look at um, <clears throat> how, what they actually say, and then, of course, what Pilate perceives here, as in John, uh, John um, 18, Pilate says, why don't you just take them and take care of them the way your law says to do it? What did their law say about blasphemy? In Leviticus, it says, well, what you do is you throw them, him down and you take stones and you stone him. So why don't they do that? A lot of reasons why they might not have wanted to. It's all speculation. But I can tell you exactly why they don't do it because John 18, 32 tells us this, it was to fulfill the very word that Jesus had spoken to show but what kind of death he was going to die. You know why all this is going on? Because Christ is in control at all times. Never forget that. I don't care what kind of circumstance or situation you might be in or how the world is absolutely falling apart. You want a cure for anxiety? Look to Christ. I don't mean to diminish that. I know some people are really challenged, really fearful. 
You know, and I, I get fretful and kind of angry sometimes. I decided to quit watching the news, and that's really helped. <laughs> Scripture says something about thinking about that which is pure and that which is lovely. And then let me tell you, not a lot of pure and lovely stuff there, but I digress. In any case, look to Christ. His word is true. He had spoken how he was going to die, and that would happen regardless. Every word of Christ is true. Even if you don't understand it, I commend you to do this. Believe him. Don't believe the lie. Even from your own gut and heart on things because you're... um, You don't see things clearly. Christ does. These hypocrites, these liars, they won't tell the truth to Pilate of what the real indictment is, so they just make up some stuff. And here, it's helpful to know from the other gospel writers because they elaborate on that aspect. And so, if you want to see it, look at Luke 23. Luke 23. Luke 23, Luke um, records some of what was saying and specifically three accusations then that were given. And it isn't blasphemy. What's the only accusation they really have? Blasphemy. But that's not what they're telling Pilate. And there's a reason for that. You can find it in Luke 23. This whole company of them arose and brought... Jesus, if you will, him, it's referring to Jesus, before Pilate. And they began to accuse him. So here's the indictment. Here's the accusation they're giving. There's three of them. Number one, we found this man misleading our nation. Number two, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. That's almost laughable. They did not want to give tribute to Caesar. But... This is an accusation. Maybe it sounds good to Rome. He's forbidding us to do this. And number three, saying that he himself is the Christ. And note here, Luke adds a king to make sure Pilate understands what is being said. In other words, he's saying that he's a king. This first accusation, misleading the nation. Remember, this is not the charge that the Jews came up with, but this is what they tell Pilate. Misleading our nation. This diastrepho is the word here. It means perverse or depraved. In context, the idea of misleading would be to be actively deviating from what is considered moral, proper, right, or good. Twisting that which is straight. This is what they accuse Jesus of. Engaging in conduct that would actively encourage others to immorality, evil, and those things that are against that which is proper and right. How do they come up with that as a way to characterize Jesus? That he is some man leading people into immorality. I'll tell you why. Because they didn't like what Jesus Christ said. That's the real problem. And so they just make everything else up. That's what we do today in in many circumstances. They don't like what Jesus said, so they just make it up. Jesus tells this very group, 
here who makes up a bunch of laws and ideas. In Luke chapter 11, I'll get back to 23 in a second so you can stay there. I'll just read this for you. He says, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, that you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe is a statement of judgment. In other words, you politicians just create a bunch of laws that you're not going to obey, but you're going to make everybody else obey them. And what's his statement to him? Woe to you. Great judgment. Matthew chapter 15. These same Pharisees and scribes, they come to Jesus and they say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? You know, these are these bunch of laws that they added on to the Mosaic law. And they give them an example. For they don't wash their hands when they eat. You weren't required to ceremonially wash your hands in every single circumstance. These are just made up rules. And Christ responds to them. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? He'll go on to explain. In vain they worship me, Matthew 15, 9. Because they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. Don't add to God's word and have people guilty because they're not following your particular traditions. Jesus' response to them is this is vain worship and judgment to you putting those burdens on the people. That's what they're worried about. Because Christ wasn't going along with their little system, politically and religiously and socially. You know why? Christ was following a single path. It's called truth. And much of their guidance deviated from the truth. Not suggestion you, you can't have your own practices and traditions and, and things that you walk in wisdom, but to make everyone else follow that path when they're supposed to follow the path of God. He stirs up people, if you're in Luke 23, that idea here is mentioned. They were urgent. Verse 5 of Luke 23, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea and Galilee, even to this place. That's what they considered to be immoral, evil, not good, not proper, because he was teaching God's word and not the commandments of men. He's accused then of being an insurrectionist, if you will, among the people. In reality, he rejects the traditions of men which only produce hypocrites, whited sepulchres, dead on the outside, conforming, yes, to all of these standards and many more, but yet the heart is still wicked on the inside. And it looks like external conformity, which is much easier to do than internal change. Well, that doesn't concern Pilate a whole lot. They bring that charge anyway. But note they bring a second one here in Luke 23. The second one is just an out-and-out lie. They said he forbids us to give tribute to Caesar. There is no 
factual basis for that statement. And it often happens in, in these kind of contentious things, if you will. In, our, in their day, like ours, there were only two things certain, death and taxes, and if you don't pay your taxes, you die. <laughs> so that's what they're hoping for, right? It's a serious charge, but it's an absolute lie and a total fabrication. It, you can slip back or just look at it later, Luke 20, few chapters earlier, they're trying to trap Jesus into this argument because they know it's a serious thing. It's kind of a step up beyond just trying to stir the crowd. They try to trap him into some sort of legal quandary between Rome. In Luke 20 and verse 20, this same group, these rulers of the Jews, they watched him, and they sent spies. Huh. You understand more and more why this is much more a political group than a religious group, but I digress. Here we go. They sent spies who pretended to be sincere, hence hypocrites. Why? That they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. This is what they're doing now, right? They've been doing this all along. This is part of their strategy, their threefold strategy that Luke discloses here that we know of. And so they want to do this, so they try to get him in a trap. So they ask in verse 21, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. They just said he perverted all that. <laughs> I don't, whatever. So they're lying again. We know that you teach rightly and show no partiality, but teach the way of God. And so here's their question. Well, is it then lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Speaking from Christ's perspective, he perceived their craftiness. Of course he did. This is God incarnate. And he says to him, this is a, a great way, just very impressive how he answers their question. Show me a denarius, that's a coin, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. What are the things that are God? Human beings are made in his image. What a beautiful analogy. Memorable one to hold. No, they tried to entrap him into making this statement. Christ's answer was absolutely perfect. But they're desperate. They're desperate to accomplish their task. And so they'll just start making false accusations even though they were proven wrong. They don't care. It's the idea of you just keep saying something that is untrue and unfounded about somebody. And you say it over and over till somebody believes it, or at least it tarnishes them to a certain degree. You know, it's like that old adage, have you, answer me now, yes or no, have you stopped beating your wife? It's not a yes or no question. Either way, you're guilty. That's what they're trying to do. It's entrapment. 
and then just false accusations made one after another. The third thing mentioned in Luke 23 is this claim to be king. This charge has a ring of truth, and it's probably the most serious. It's the most significant of the three. Jesus did accept worship as king. If you remember in Matthew 21, for example, when he comes earlier in that week, and they knew it too, what, what was the chant of the crowd when Jesus comes through the gates of Jerusalem as prophesied on that specific day and on that specific animal, not as a horse of triumph, but on a donkey to come humbly and sacrificially, their response, the entire crowd, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David. This is the phraseology that means save us now. It is a, an appeal to God who is son of David, would be king. The king that was promised to live forever. <clears throat> In Matthew 21, you can find the response of these Pharisees, these scribes, these hypocrites, these rulers of the Jews. It says, they were indignant. And their response to him was, don't you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said, haven't you read the prophet Isaiah who said, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, have you prepared praise? At that moment, they should collapse on their knees and confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. But they will not, because they don't have ears to hear. They don't have eyes to see. They don't have a heart to respond. Jesus Christ is the son of David. He is the king of kings. He's not in the way they described him as king. But this does intrigue Pilate. And here, back to then John, after we filled in the background, this is what charges they explain. This is the one that actually interests him. He does apparently mentioned some of the other charges in his interview. Again, we're only given a little snippet here in John, but back to John chapter 18. This is the second aspect of the Roman trial, this then examination of this indictment. He asks, 1833, are you the king of the Jews? All of the gospel writers reference this question this examination question, because it's the primary charge. He does look at these other charges. In Luke, Luke gives the minimal detail, Luke 23. It just, his response is just to this question, well, you've said so, and that is he affirms it. Matthew adds a few more details in Matthew chapter 27. In addition, do you said so? Pilate then challenges Jesus more. Well, well, they've testified many things against you. We, we mentioned two others, and perhaps there are even more. But he gave not an answer to those in Matthew 27. And why, why not? Because those, those didn't even need an answer. These are fabricated out of whole cloth. Mark provides further clarity in his reference of this situation. In the response of king of Jews, 
Pilate says, have you no answer to make? See how many charges. Jesus made no further answer. And Pilate was amazed. John provides the most clarity, I think, on the response to this examination question. And it's a critical question. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you king? You see, the, the problem with that question asked by Pilate is that his answer is really going to be unsatisfactory to both sides, both Jew and Gentile. They have imagined the concept of king incorrectly. The Jews have managed this idea of king. Christ means Messiah, that coming king, that he would be a political leader. He would come to overthrow the government and lead them out of temporal bondage. There's some aspects of that. All nations will be subject to Christ, but that's their only concept of it. Rome had similar concerns about a king, mostly not one that might rule a little territory as a governor-type ship, but one that would overthrow Caesar, one that would not submit to Caesar. That's what they're concerned about. And Jesus knows both of their ideas about king. And so to answer that question, yeah, I'm a king, You have to skillfully answer it, if you will. And so, notice back in Luke, I'm Luke, I meant to say John, John 18, verse 34. Here you have Jesus setting up the thought processes for Pilate to have him examine his own thoughts about it, and then us as the readers as well, to see this as well. Jesus is response to are you a king is this do you say this verse 34 of your own accord or did others say it to you about me in other words is this coming from your roman perspective your concept of a king or is this coming from these jews and of course he doesn't like that response at all is it rooted in the jewish concept or the Roman concept. He says, verse 35, Am I a Jew? Your, your own nation had delivered. Now what have you done? He asked them. Jesus will answer. But he's not going to answer in the way Pilate expects. He's going to explain that both Jews and Gentiles have a false concept of who Jesus the king is. And can I tell you, that's very applicable today. Most of the world have no idea, really, who Jesus is. Oh, they might say, you're a king. But they have no idea of who he is and and what is the realm of his kingdom and his domain. So John then gives the defense. That's the third aspect in the Roman trial, the defense. He will give that answer. And it's unexpected on both sides, and I would argue it's also rejected on both sides by Pilate and an annoyance to the, dismissed by Pilate, if you will, and annoying the Jews directly. Notice this defense here in verse 36 of John 18. 
Jesus' response, he's going to then explain what it means to be a king and his claim and the statements said about him. He explains then the kingdom or the domain of what he, of his rule. He says, my kingdom is, no, it is not of this world. If, it, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not, of, not from the world. Notice Jesus does affirm that he is indeed king. However, he is not the king in the way you guys imagine king and kingdom. Two negations. He says specifically, I'm not of this world. And second, I am not from this world. The world here, in this sense, is used metaphorically, primarily. It's used other ways. But here, in the sense of this world, this world's system. This world's system, as John would describe in his uh, first epistle, all, when he says all <coughs> that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It is of the devil. That's what he means by world in this sense. He is, he is not of this world. He is not of this world's system. There is a distinction of Christ the King and his kingdom. There is, there is some separation, if you will, a distinction from the world's system. And then the second negation here, he says, I am not from this world. That is, he didn't originate from the world system. He doesn't gain his authority from the world and the world system. And therefore, no one can take it from him. The description that John uh, records Jesus saying quite often to describe his circumstance, his uh, resource is to think this way. He says, I am from above and you are below. I'll read a passage for you, for example, John 8, 23. <clears throat> to these very same scribes, he's informed them. He said to them, you are from below. In other words, you're from the world and the world system. That's where you originate. You are of this world. He says, but I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, that is, I am God, you will die in your sins. That is the natural default state of all who are of the world. It must be from, united from that one who is from above, that is Christ. He says, I am from above. It is Christ who came, humbled himself, took on human flesh, but he is not, doesn't originate from the world or the world system. It isn't a religious system <clears throat> developed by somebody that might have been good, bad, or evil, or however you might think about him, that came up with ideas and ideology and wrote a, a book. This is about God incarnate coming to earth. He reminds that. Just shortly before this, to his very disciples in his high priestly prayer as he prays to the Father in John chapter 17, he says to his, about his disciples, I don't want you take, to take them out of the world, verse 15 of John 17, but that you would keep them from the evil one. That is the 
domain of darkness. That is the world. That is the degree of separation in but not of, if you will. Certainly doesn't originate from it. As he would say, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctified means to be set apart, to be made holy, to be distinct. And how would it be? There, there is this world. There is this world system. They need to be engaged in it to some degree to be able to proclaim Christ, to be able to show the light and beauty of his glory and yet not be consumed and corrupted by it. To still have some sort of influence as a light of the world, but not sheltered to where no one could see it. As salt preserving but not put away on the back shelf, cloistered completely away. There is a fine line and much wisdom there, but the idea is in but not of, and certainly not from. It doesn't originate from your own ideas and your own ideology. Someone is in Christ because of his work from above condescending to us. Jesus in John 18 will give a defense and a description that demonstrates the uniqueness of his kingdom when he says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. If you remember shortly before this, a great example, when Peter does fight, he thinks his first response is to yank his sword and begin hacking soldiers. Christ tells him to put it away and then protects him from his own folly so that he wouldn't be charged for insurrection. He tells him to put away his sword because followers of Christ don't live and die by the sword, but by the cross. It is by sacrifice. Christians will move forward. Well, Pilate hears this defense and he asks, so, or makes a statement, it is listed as a question, so kind of rhetorically, so you are a king then. He still doesn't quite get it because if he got it and if you get it, you would confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Get it? <laughs> That's the right response. Not, oh, well, you're, well, I guess you're saying you are a king. This is God incarnate. This is the one who is holy, holy, holy. This is what all creation will confess him as Lord. But he gives an affirmation here. He says, you say that I am king. That phraseology, you might not quite get it, but the, but the imagery is this. He's saying, what you're saying is true, even though you don't understand what you're saying. In other words, he, he's giving a clear, truthful statement. He doesn't necessarily understand it. And he tells him why. 
because I've come into the world for this very thing, to do what? To bear, verse 37, to bear witness to the truth. That's who Christ is. Everything he says is true. Without error. Absolutely perfect. And then he adds this to it. Everyone who is, note this, of the truth listens to my voice. Do you listen to Christ? Do you really hear him? This is an indication that you're of the truth. Not necessarily do you act perfectly in all you do. Of course you don't. You wrestle with that, what we would call remaining sin. But you hear the truth and you listen to his voice. You come to him in repentance and faith and trusting in him. You have a desire that's on the inside that wants to obey. Not a desire on the outside that's following some rules and traditions, no matter how good or bad any of them might be. But there's something on the inside that says, I want to be sanctified and set apart to Christ because I love him. He's my Lord and I wish to follow him. He's my shepherd. And I hear his voice. As Jesus would explain in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they follow me. Do you have a desire to follow Christ? Do you hear his voice calling? Come follow me. Then I give unto you, Christ would say, eternal life. And you will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is what we call eternal security. You're eternally secure because of Christ the shepherd, who will lose none of his. Those who hear the truth then heed the truth. That's, they, they listen. It isn't just words flying past their ears. Like I've got a border collie that doesn't hear very well. Oh, he hears when he wants to. It's just... He doesn't always want to. <laughs> and there are times when he can get so excited, he just, he just won't hear a word I'm saying. Those who hear have ears, and it isn't just noise to them. It isn't just nonsense to them. It is something that Effects deep inside. And you can put two and two together here in Christ's defense, can't you? Pilate apparently does not have ears to hear. All this truth is given. All this verity is given. And in fact, his response then, his... Um, Verdict is, I find no guilt in him. Verse 38. 
But it's couched in this phrase here. What is truth? It's, it's hard to catch the tone, but it seems a bit sarcastic. Maybe we would think postmodern in our day, right? What is truth? Truth incarnate is standing before him. That's who's truth. Do you see him? Do you know him? But one thing is true. He, at least he followed his guidelines under Roman law, which the hypocrite Jewish leaders did not. And his response is, I find no guilt in him. He's going to say it a couple more times in chapter 19. He continues to try to let Jesus go, to send him away. He sends him off to Herod Antipas, which John doesn't record because really that's just a waste of time, quite frankly. It's a wild goose chase. doesn't amount to anything, and he comes back to Pilate again. But it's just part of Pilate's attempt here to uh, do what is right. You have a pagan king, uh, ruler, governor, following the law, and the law says there's no guilt. All these charges that you brought. They, they bring about no guilty verdict. He is true. He tries to let him go because the facts line up. But he misses the greatest fact, and that is faith. That is truth. In the end, even though he's declared not guilty by the Roman authority, you guys know the rest of the story, don't you? He goes ahead then and violates his own code of ethics and delivers Christ over. These unique facts about Jesus Christ are not going to register in the heart of sinful men. Whether it's the hypocrite Jewish leaders or this Roman governor. All of them are dripping with guilt including Pilate, who violates his own code and delivers Christ over to be crucified. Each one of them is worthy of the judgment that is declared. You know the judgment ultimately that's declared is death. These wicked men act in an irrational way because of the insanity of sin. Truth stands before them, and yet they would rather believe a lie. Glory shines forth in great brilliance, but they can't see it because they have no eyes and are blinded of it. Grace abounding for them, yet they would rather work their way in self-righteousness to cross an impossible chasm that they couldn't barely reach with the first step, they would fall. Mercy is granted to them, but because they think they already measure up, they miss the measure who is Christ. The measure is perfection. And they all fail. This is why Jesus cried out, I 
am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Question, do you see him? Do you hear his voice? Do you follow him? Let us pray. Father, we're thankful for the condescension you have in sending the Son. I can't fathom the amount of humility it would take to clothe your glory in filthy rags. I am thankful that you will take my filthiness upon Christ and atone for my sin and clothe me in his perfect righteousness. And forever, I will praise your holy name. I pray that many will see and hear the very words of Christ even this day. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Beloved, take a moment to think about these very things, the passage that we're on and way God may have spoken to you. Do so privately where you are now. If you would like to see one of the elders afterwards, we'll be glad to pray for you for any needs that you might have. Take a moment now and think on these things. Sometimes you guys switch up, so I looked over you, whatever. Any case, 413, wasn't it? Don't you want to sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus now? Come on, let's stand up and sing it together.
For this reason, I bless you in the name of the Lord, that the Lord may make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. May the name of the Lord Jesus be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We're dismissed.